Hello, everyone, and welcome to Truncated Thoughts presented by Prescouter. We're back again for another year of discussing big ideas in life science. I'm Jeremy Schmer, and today I'm joined by Dr. Michael Boat, who, as you may remember, is our resident infectious disease expert and fanatical microbiologist. I can't speak for everybody, but now more than ever, it seems we are hearing of more friends, colleagues, public figures, and family members who are testing positive for COVID. I find myself asking lots of questions, some of which I'm going to ask Michael today. As a disclaimer, Michael is not a medical doctor and his perspectives do not replace advice of a healthcare provider. Um, but as you'll see, he knows his stuff related to COVID. So Michael, why don't we get things started? You know, a lot of information circulating about Omicron. Can you just give us a sense of what makes it different and is it actually more contagious? Yeah. So, so thanks for having me on and uh, always, always a pleasure to join these calls. Um, I think this is the first time we're, uh, we're one-on-one, so that's pretty exciting as well. Let's do it. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot of information floating around. I, I also think there's a lot of noise uh, floating around as well, uh, which is presented as information. Um, I think that's going to be maybe a recurring theme in, in our conversation as well today, but the real challenge here is, is trying to make sense of what is known and, and what one can say with limited data on things like Omicron. And so... If you look at the existing data, clinical data that's available on Omicron circulating, there's actually not so much yet there to the extent where people can draw conclusions around transmission, um, long-term disease, or clinical outcomes. And so slowly but surely, some of these elements are starting to come out in the last few weeks. Um, But in reality, most of these questions aren't really uh, fully answered yet. There's some contradictory um, information around it being more or less contagious. The big complicating factor there, just to keep in mind for everyone, is most people that um, live in the U.S. or that live, in my case, in, in the Netherlands, they have gotten their vaccines. And so the case study that we're doing now is asking, is a, is a variant of a virus in a naive population or unvaccinated population, different or less contagious than one in a population that has drastically changed. People have become infected in the meanwhile. People have gotten their second, third vaccine doses. And so this study or this question may seem trivial. Is it severe or is it contagious? But in reality, it's really hard to compare because we're comparing apples to pears. It sounds, well, in the US, we usually say apples and oranges. <laughs> Love our cultural differences. Um, so it sounds like you don't, you can't really know for sure because there's, we're juggling too many factors. There's the unvaccinated, there's the partially vaccinated, there's the fully boosted. There's too many factors to draw a, you know, a hard line on what's real and what's not as it relates to these variants. Is that a fair summary? I think the sample size is the biggest challenge. So now there are some studies that are coming out that do have, there's still, unfortunately, a lot of unvaccinated people. And so there are still naive populations that haven't seen these viruses yet. And so there are definitely correlates that can be drawn. Um, It's just a matter of gathering enough data over time, um, dealing with that data in a a statistically fair manner, um, and getting a representative section of a population. 
Um, so I, I definitely think that in the long term and, and as the coming months, we'll, we'll get more and more of these types of data. There's probably going to be some, some information around, is it more contagious? Is it less severe? But generally speaking, what is being seen right now can be attributed to us getting vaccinated as a population or us being protected by previous infection more so than knowing for sure that this virus is behaving differently. One small note, though, there are some studies, um, we call these in vitro studies. Um, these are done on, on cell lines in labs where they have grown the virus, the Omicron virus, thrown it on human lung cells. And they actually saw that the Omicron virus compared to Delta is a bit less good at infecting some of these cells. So there are definitely some pieces of evidence that there may be some differences from virus to virus. But of course, and as many of our listeners will know, uh, if they've been part of, of a research setting, um, yeah, the real experiment is, is the human experiment. So these in vitro studies, we don't always know how well they correlate to what's actually happening within a human body. So while we're on the topic of, of those variants and kind of testing the, the differences in layman's terms, right? How does a variant form? And how many do you think there will be throughout this whole pandemic process? I think if I could predict that, I would, uh, I would <laughs> probably be a, a hot commodity, uh, so to say. Um, but so the real answer is, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. There are some interesting studies being done on, on predicting how these viruses evolve over time. And actually, um, there's been a few modeling studies, which took some of the viruses, the, the original viruses, threw them on some of these cell uh, culturing experiments that we just discussed, and just let them grow, grow over and over and over. And to sort of see where can they end up? How can they evolve if you let them roam free? And interestingly, some of these experiments early on, already done way before Omicron was a thing, led to the identification of mutations in the virus that are now within Omicron. So there is something to say for knowing or covering space to which this virus can go, studying it, but I don't think there's a real answer to how many variants there'll be. Um, how, they, how they arise is, is really by co-evolution within populations. Um, co-evolution within, in some cases, for other virus animal reservoirs, in this case, unfortunately, human reservoirs, where viruses, they end up in, in people causing a long-term infection that then leads to certain adaptations, which makes a virus um, gain an advantage over its counterpart, which does not have these mutations. Let me ask you this. So as it relates to the, the variants and the mutations, you know, are we to assume that Omicron is sort of the dominant variant right now? But does that mean that, I mean, Alpha, Delta and others have sort of been sunsetted or are they less prevalent? Like once the dominant variant takes over, are the others not in the mix anymore? How does that happen? Yeah, it's a competition experiment, really. It's like releasing eight runners on a on a athletic track and asking who's fastest. And so what we've seen as, as from Alpha to Delta to Omicron now, these viruses have the tendency to either um, lead to an active infection faster or spread faster between people. And so that gives them a competitive advantage over the other variant. And just by sheer competitive uh, advantage, the speed at which it can transmit from person to person, the other strains have been pushed out of the population. It's just 
who can who can move from person to person fastest and so the so, drive has been towards um towards shortening that time um and there's a limit to that time there's going to be a moment where probably these viruses there's some critical time they need would need to infect to reach a certain virus level and so i don't expect that we're going to end up with uh, another 500 variants that decrease the infection time from four days, for instance, to half a day, because that's towards the, the biological limits of, of these viruses. But there has been a drive towards faster um, transmission or more effective transmission. Even so, it's so it's sheer evolution, evolutionary biology, right? Survival of the fittest, as it were, related to to variants, <laughs> effectively. Yeah, and it's it's perhaps not even fittest. It 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 is in this case the one that can cause uh, a, a high peak in virus that is in a short amount of time that allows the spread to happen faster. Because some of these some of these mutations within the genome of these viruses, they're targeting functional um, proteins. In this case, the spike, and so the changes in these they can. May, they may allow them to spread faster, but it can also come at a cost. And that is, of course, why these uh, rumblings are within, uh, within the news, within the scientific community. What if that virus sacrificed some of its virulence or some of its potential to cause clinical sequelae for speed? And that can happen. That's not something, it's not a, the virus is not choosing to do one over the other. One of these variants arises and by sort of selection spreads through a population. So there might be some variants in the future, which are relatively harmless, so to say, or could be relatively harmless compared to some of the other variants, but which is even faster than some of the viruses in terms of spreading. Interesting. So you're, you're bringing up something that segues nicely to another question I had for you. So as it relates to potentially these variants being less potent or less dangerous in some cases, I'm wondering if you think people are genetically predisposed for their response to the virus, whether it might be mild or severe, how much of that is a factor? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, and especially, I, I mean, I, one of my uh, topics when I did my PhD as well as my postdoc was understanding the interplay between host and pathogen. And it is an interplay. It's not one or the other. Um, and actually, let me complicate that for you, is you today versus you tomorrow or you during day or you during at night, there's a different setting even within people. There's even from one of your skin cells to the other, there's differences. So there's a lot of factors that come into play into how a body responds and how individuals respond from one to the other. There's an element of genetic predisposition to, to develop disease or not. Um, you can see that from anecdotal evidence already probably around you, right? There's people that were positive and they didn't notice a thing. They just had a positive test and nothing happened. And there's people that end up in a hospital. And these are, in some cases, both, for instance, Delta variants. So it clearly shows you that in that case, it's potentially more towards the host determining that, but there may also be something in the pathogen that can have some kind of statistical effect having one over the other, some kind of element of opportunity. Um, yeah. So that, that again, segues to some other questions. I have a couple of more like rapid fire 
questions that, that I've been hearing amongst friends and family, and maybe I can just throw a few scenarios at you and you can try to um, give some perspective. So I've, I've heard of many spouses getting the virus, not distancing in the home and not passing it along to their spouse or children. How might you explain that? Yeah, that's, that's a good one. I, I think the main way of spreading the virus is, is through coughing. That's a very effective way to get virus out, expels it into the air, and then um, infecting other uh, other people. If someone doesn't cough, that risk is dramatically decreased. So that is a major factor um, that could play into that. Um, so effectively, be- if you're not showing symptoms, like outwardly showing symptoms, it's likely that you could be sitting on a couch next to somebody with the virus and, and not really be in any danger. Now, we don't want to tell that to the general public, but that is the science behind it, correct? It's like a lottery. The more tickets you buy, the more chance you have to win. And <laughs> coughing just gives you a lot of tickets to win the lottery of getting infected. So it's, 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 that, it's, an, it's not black and white. It's, a, it's the amount of odd, uh, statistical odds that you have in favor of infection or, or not being infected. And one of them is definitely coughing. Okay. So let's take another scenario. Can a person with natural immunity from a previous COVID infection still be a carrier if exposed again? Yes. Yes. And I think the the main, the goalpost moved with vaccines. That's what we see nowadays is people went from, can it prevent severe disease to can it prevent infection? Unfortunately, or fortunately, it can prevent clinical disease, but unfortunately, it can't prevent infection. And infection means you get the virus, there's some ramp up phase, depending on your vaccination status or your immune status, that allows the virus to reproduce. And that can reach a level where someone's carrying and where someone's potentially spreading to people without being symptomatic. It can also lead to a case where they shoot up in, in virus levels, but do not reach that critical phase where they may not be spreading. So in both cases, um, yeah, that it can, can go either way, so to say. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It sort of sounds like if, if there is any virus present in you, regardless of your immune status, you, you probably can pass it to somebody else if you coughed. <laughs> So to speak. Yeah. And that's the reason why these rapid antigen tests, for instance, are very valuable because they detect a h- relatively high level of virus. And so that means that if those turn positive, it is very likely that you're also contagious to your environment. Um, whereas, and that's arguable, I know a lot of people have a lot of opinions about rapid tests, but at least it gives you some indication whether you're, when you're positive, very likely infectious. When you're negative, you can go into the rabbit hole of uh, sensitivities and not being sure if you're actually negative, but at least it will give you some sort of barrier to, to estimate that. Right. It kind of brings me to a question around the PCR tests. So PCR tests, at least here in the US, there's been a big delay of getting test results. So I'm wondering what actually makes this PCR test so different where, you know, what's happening in the lab that makes the results take so much longer? Is it a logistical item where it maybe needs to be sent to a lab or is there a process that just can't be scaled? Yeah, I, I, I'm actually particularly surprised about this myself as well, because it can be scaled. Um, it is being scaled 
it just hasn't been scaled enough or has been scaled down already. So it's logistical, sending the samples, supply chain issues, getting collection tubes for the swabs, getting the swabs, um, having people to administer them, shipping it, having someone in the lab receiving it. The technical PCR itself, it takes about one and a half hour. The prep for it takes maybe, can be automated very easily. It takes maybe 30 minutes. So that's not the, that's not the time consuming step. Got it. Okay. So one other thing on the testing front, do you have time for a couple more questions? Absolutely. Okay. So another question that I've, something I've seen and heard, um, you know, in, in various publications and, and from different people, some people, when they're doing their antigen test, especially looking for Omicron, they're doing a throat swab as well. In addition to the nasal swab, you know, I took a COVID test, you know, a few weeks ago, my wife said, swab your throat first and then swab your nose. What, what's your perspective on that? Is that useful? Is that accurate or give us what your thoughts? I think the most important thing is that the tests, these rapid antigen tests, they should, they are tested in a way that is standardized. So a rapid antigen test is um, performance characteristics were done with a nasal swab. So it can only be guaranteed that it will work that way if you use it as a nasal swab. So that's sort of that point I want to make first. Whether or not there is a biological reason to do that, because for instance, and this is also speculated in, in, in some of the scientific publications, Omicron might populate a lower part of the respiratory tract as opposed to the nasal cavity. Um, there may be a reason to, to think of doing a throat swap as well. Um, it's something I would probably advise for healthcare professionals to, to do if they're comfortable. It may require a different kind of different swap, um, but it does make, it does make sense. I, right. I wouldn't say go do it. I don't think the evidence is, is really um, solid yet that, that it may also help, but there may be a biological reason to, to start thinking about including throat swaps, for instance, in these antigen tests. Right. And also what I've heard is that perhaps since the intended use was for nasal in the test, the test could be evolved or you know redesigned to accommodate those who are doing a throat swab and perhaps Absolutely. That is a, a different test. But um, one other question I have, and then we'll let you go. Um, as, as we think about parents of, of young children, infants, or those who've, you know, maybe recently conceived, um, can antibodies be passed to infants who are nursing or babies in the womb by mothers who have contracted the virus or been vaccinated? Yeah, that's a great question. I know there's a lot of, uh, interest in, in that as well. Um, generally speaking, um, a mother who's vaccinated and who, uh, who, who nurses, uh, the baby, um, they will definitely pass along antibodies. Um, so that's, uh, that's something I, I can say for sure. Um, babies in the womb typically, and there's some, I know there's some debate around this as well, but typically there's no really strong evidence to, um, to expect that there's also transfer in that stage. Um, it's usually after labor that, that these things really, uh, um, yeah, really happen. That being said is it's of course, vaccination for mothers will make sure that they are at least in a, um, at less risk for forming serious disease. And that will also, of course, impact the, the, the baby in the labor, et cetera. 
So gotcha. generally speaking, there's other benefits of, of still getting vaccinated um, as a, as a mother. Got it. And it makes sense. Like a lot of the things we've discussed, some of the information is still evolving. What we know is still evolving. Um, but let's stay on brand with the, the truncated nature of this podcast and uh, thank everybody for, for listening. And Michael, thank you for, for giving your perspective. Again, not medical advice. Um, if you're sick, call your doctor or, you know, don't rely on this podcast for, for your course of action. But if you're not a subscriber already, find us on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher and join us again where we'll, we'll continue having these discussions. Thank you.